Well, good morning, Bayshore. I'm so glad you're joining us with our online service today, and I'm just thrilled you're part of this great experience today. We're having people all over our community that are listening to this online service, as well as people in different parts of our country that are listening to this message and to this uh, broadcast. So thank you so much for being with us today. Hope you're having an amazing July 4th weekend. July 4th is one of my favorite holidays, and I hope you're having some great barbecues, playing some cornhole, and being safe as well. So we're so glad that you joined us today. We're in a series uh, called The Waiting Game. We've been talking about uh, what the Bible has to talk, uh, what the Bible has to say about waiting. There's so much waiting in life that we all have to do. And I just wanted to take a few weeks and begin to look at what the Bible says about waiting and people in the Bible that had to wait. And we talked uh, about Noah having to wait in the ark. And we talked about Elijah having to wait before it rained. And last week we talked about Zachariah and Elizabeth that were waiting for a child. So today I want to talk about something that I haven't talked about in a long time. I want to talk today about the early church, how they were waiting for the second coming of Jesus, the early church waiting for the second coming of Jesus. This is a really, really incredible subject when you think about it. I haven't preached on this. A lot of people aren't talking much about this, but the second coming of Jesus is a prolific a really, really ubiquitous idea in the New Testament. Did you know this, that 300, there's over 300 verses in the New Testament that talk about the second coming of Jesus. What that really boils down to is one in every 30 verses, there's a verse that talks about the second coming of Jesus. Now, the early church was constantly waiting for the coming of Jesus. And, uh, you know, when I was growing up, uh, back uh, in the 70s when I was in high school, back when I had long hair, I was a hippie and uh, want to be hippie. My hair wasn't long as I wanted it to be. My parents kind of kept it uh, shorter than I wanted it to be. And I wore bell-bottom uh, jeans and I was sort of in that vogue. In the 70s, there was a whole lot uh, of conversation a lot of preaching, uh, a lot of songs about the second coming of Jesus. It was like really, really uh, everywhere. Uh, I listened to Spotify. Spotify is where I listen to most of my music. And so a lot of the songs and a lot of the artists I listened to in the 70s, Christian artists, contemporary Christian artists are on Spotify. Uh, like Andre Crouch, for instance. Here's a picture of Andre Crouch. Andre Crouch was an incredible communicator, great singer. And uh, I had all of his albums and all of that. And he had a lot of songs about the second coming of Jesus. And here's one of the songs he had was called Soon and Very Soon. Soon and Very Soon, we're going to see the king. Soon and Very Soon, we're going to see the king. Soon and Very Soon, we're going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the king. He had another song that was really, really one of my favorite songs. It was called Just Like He Said He Would. And here's how the verse goes. Just like he said he would, just like he said he would, he's coming back for me, he's coming back for me. In a twinkling of the eye, oh, just like he said he would, he's coming back for me. And uh, lots of songs. He also had another song called It Won't Be Long and then we'll be leaving. A lot of times he would end his concerts with that song, it won't be long, and then we'll be leaving. So it wasn't just Andre Krauts, there was a lot of other people. Larry Norman, here's a picture of Larry Norman. Larry Norman was, uh, was a really kind of a radical guy in the 70s, Christian contemporary guy. I think it once was on the cover of Newsweek magazine. And uh, he had a, f a really famous song called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. 
and it says life was filled with guns and war and all of us were trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. I wish we'd all been ready. The children died, the days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. And then there was uh, Bill Gaither who had a song, you know, Bill Gaither, if you were into more gospel kind of music, he had a song that said, um, the king is coming, the king is coming, and it was really a big hit, a really incredible song. My favorite, my favorite group in the 70s was a group called uh, Malcolm and Alwyn. They sort of sounded like the Beatles, and here's a picture of their, uh, one of their great albums. They had, it was called Fool's Wisdom. One of the greatest contemporary Christian songs ever done in the 70s was a song called Fool's Wisdom. And Malcolm and Alwyn, they, they really did sound like the Beatles, maybe even better than the Beatles. They were incredible. They had a song called Tomorrow's News, and it read like this. Here's the first verse. Have you seen the paper? Have you read the news? 200 million disappear and the whole world is confused. The churches are empty now. No one goes there anymore. The remains of the Bible lay scattered on the floor. Remember Mr. Tomlinson, who everybody knew, he vanished from his home last week. He was one of the chosen few. So there was tons of songs in the, uh, in the 70s about the second coming of Jesus. Then there were books. In 1970, there was a book by a guy by the name of Hal Lindsey who wrote a bestseller uh, called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. came out in May of 1970. Here's what New York, it made the New York Times bestseller list, and the New York Times called it the number one nonfiction bestseller of the decade. The bestseller of the decade. So everybody was reading The Late Great Planet Birth, and then there came out the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. There's a picture of those books. There were 16 of these books, about three of them, were number one on the New York's bestseller uh, bestsellers list, and a couple of them started out on number one right in the beginning. So there was a lot of things. When I was in high school, uh, there was a book called Rapture, Rapture, Rapture by a guy named Ernest Angley. And here's a picture of the book. It looked just like this. I had this book. In fact, I bought a case of it. And I gave this book out to my high school buddies, people that I was trying to win to the Lord. Because I read the book, scared me to death. Scared me to death. I was a Christian raised in church. I read Rapture, Rapture, Rapture. And man, I got down on my knees, got saved all over again. This just scared me to death. And I thought if anybody reads this book, they're going to they're gonna get saved. And they're going to come to a relationship with the Lord. So there's lots of talk in the 70s about the second coming of Jesus. I, I just really wonder, when is the last time you heard a message on the second coming of Jesus? I can tell you, I haven't heard a lot of messages in the last 15 years about the second coming of Jesus. I have heard Greg Laurie at Harvest Church uh, on the West Coast. He did a series on it, very incredible uh, Bible teacher. I love Greg Laurie, always teaches the word. He's very faithful to the word. He's very trendy, very culturally relevant, but he's very, very committed to the Bible as well. But I'm just, I'm just really thinking a little bit about this whole idea. Why has this subject disappeared off the radar screen of the church? So I wanted to talk a little bit about it in this waiting game series because the early church was expecting Jesus to come at any moment. They lived in that mindset. Now, let's first of all, let's think about this. Was the second coming of Jesus, Jesus coming in the clouds and taking the church up off the planet to be with him and then maybe creating a, a reign on the earth uh, for a millennial period of time and all of that, is that something that's really in the Bible 
Or is that something people just made up? Is that something that Hal Lindsey made up uh, or that, you know, uh, you know, Tim LaHaye made up? Or is there really a biblical basis for the second coming of Jesus? Now, I would say this. This is very important for us to know is there's a lot of, you know, different versions of how this is all going to happen. Uh, and if you go to Bible college, you go to seminary, you do a thing where you study eschatology. And that's the study of last things. And eschatos means the last. And so when you have eschatology, you study about the end times. And so it's a subject that has a lot of interest. But let me say this to you, first of all, something that's important for us to kind of, you know, begin our our talk today uh, is that the idea of the second coming of Jesus originated with Jesus himself. It was Jesus who originated this idea. The church, the early church, the book of Acts, they preached about repent and come to the kingdom of God, and they preached about the second coming of Jesus. They got that directly from Jesus. So I, lay, I really have to think about it this way. When we think about the second coming of Jesus, it kind of seems like a crazy idea, strange idea, you know, that he would come in the clouds and take us up. It just seems like such a bizarre thing, like science fiction or something. But when you think about it, you have to remember that this doctrine came from Jesus himself. Jesus was the one who originated this doctrine. Now, I love what Andy Stanley says of North Point Church uh, in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. He says, you know, anybody that can predict uh, their own death and the resurrection, we kind of much go along with whatever they say. Now, Jesus, if he, he predicted his own death and his own resurrection, he was right about that. He was right about his death, how he was going to die. He even described the type of death he was going to be lifted up on a cross and he was going to be raised from the dead, not in four days, not in five days, but three days. He predicted the amount of days and he was raised from the dead. If Jesus was right about that, his testimony, what he says about everything else really is the trump card. It's the trump card. It's the ace card. And so it, it has a lot of merit. So let me give you some sampling. I, there's so much information uh, that I can never get through all the verses. You know, trying to cover this is sort of like putting an elephant in a telephone booth. There's just so much stuff. So I want to give you a little taste of the second coming of people waiting in the New Testament. They were waiting. Talk about the waiting game. The early church, they were waiting. They were waiting. They were anticipating something amazing that was going to happen. So let me give you a little sample that Jesus, these are words from Jesus. Let's, let's begin. Here about the, how about this one? John 14, verses 1 through 3. You've heard this probably at a funeral. You probably heard this, you know, in church. But John 14, 1 through 3, listen to this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, listen to this, I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. So we see in John 14, verses 1 through 3, that Jesus is building, he's preparing a place for us, and he said, I told you about it. If I told you about it, it's true. And if I prepared a place for you, I will come back and get you so you can be with me. So that verse, sometimes we read that verse, we receive comfort, but we miss the last line that affirms the second coming of Jesus, that Jesus is coming back. Interesting point here. Uh, many times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, the uh, coming of Jesus is compared to a bride coming for a bride, a bridegroom coming for a bride. 
So even in this passage, we get a hint of that. So, you know, you've got the parable of the, the 10 virgins, virgin, virgins in uh, Matthew chapter 25. They're waiting, and then the bridegroom comes with his buddies, and they're with torches, and they cry out, and they blow a trumpet, and they blow, a, uh, blow a, a, a shofar, and the bride comes out to meet him. That's the imagery that Jesus constantly uses. And here, here if you think about how the... Uh, early church, basically in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how weddings occurred in those days. Here's how they occurred. What happened was, is there would be an arrangement between a, uh, two parents, and they would uh, decide that their, their children were going to marry, and there would be some conversation, of course, with the kids about that. Then they would have a legal agreement, a betrothal, uh, and so a young man would pay a dowry to the family of the bride he was going to marry, and he would pay a dowry. The reason he would pay a dowry is because he's taking a, a farm worker out of that household, so he's going to you know, contribute some money to take care of that family, and he, he, there's, they're betrothed. That's sort of like our, our engagement, and so that goes on for a year. For a year, they're betrothed. And what happens in that year? They don't see each other for a whole year. They don't see each other for a whole year. What's he doing? He, this bridegroom uh, is, is at his father's house building an addition onto his father's house, or he's building a little house on the property of his father's house. And then at an undisclosed time, sometime around a year, he'll come in the darkness with torches lit, and there'll be somebody there that will blow a shofar, and he, there will be a cry, your bridegroom is here, and this this woman, this young lady that's been waiting for her bridegroom to come get her has been waiting. She's got her dress ready. She's got her lamp ready. She's got everything ready, and she's staying ready. And as she hears that trumpet and as she hears the bridegroom call out, she comes out to him, and then they go to the house that he's prepared for her. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying just how it happens in your culture where uh, there is a bridegroom who pays a price to purchase the bride. Jesus paid his price on the cross to purchase us and purchase our salvation. He has gone away. He's preparing a place for us, and we're waiting, and we're waiting with anticipation, making ourselves beautiful, making ourselves holy, making ourselves righteous, making ourselves more like Jesus so that when we hear the shofar blown in the street, we come out and we meet the Lord. So there's so much in the New Testament about the second coming of Jesus. Uh, it's just everywhere. Let me read you another passage. This is out of um, Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 24 verses 30 through 31. Here's what it says, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, with a loud trumpet call. Remember, the bridegroom would have one of his buddies with him with a shofar, and he would blow the trumpet. It says when Jesus comes back, the angels will blow a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. So remember what we're talking about here. Where does the idea of the second coming of Jesus come from? Where does it come from? Doesn't come from Hal Lindsey, doesn't come from Tim LaHaye, doesn't come from Pat Robertson, doesn't come from Billy Graham, doesn't come from some pastor somewhere, doesn't come from the Scopefield Bible, if you know what that is, uh, and it doesn't come from there. 
It comes from Jesus himself. Jesus himself spoke of the second coming, and uh, it was something very, very interesting. Now, it was carried on in the book of Acts. Now, listen to this. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. We get a picture of what type of uh, coming Jesus is going to have. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It says this. Uh, After he said this, this is Jesus talking to the disciples. Remember, after Jesus was raised from the dead, for 40 days, 40 days, he gave infallible, convincing proofs that he was alive. It wasn't like they just saw Jesus on Easter Sunday pass away. They thought they saw Jesus pass by. That must have been Jesus. He must be raised from the dead. No, for 40 days, he was with them. Day after day, he appeared to them. He ate with them. He appeared, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, to more than 500 people at one time. The early church was saturated with the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead, and they saw him, and they were convinced, and he gave many convincing proofs. But after After he was with him for 40 days, the Bible says the next thing that happened was he ascended to heaven. And it says in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up, listen to this, before their very eyes. He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Listen to this. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. When I was a little boy, I used to go to my, my grandmom's house and uh, and they lived in a little farmhouse, and they had a big, a big family Bible. I don't know if you have a, uh, uh, you know, memories of when you were growing up as a kid, a big family Bible, you know, all the, you know, baptism certificates are stuck in and all that. And they, they had a, a stairway going up to this little primitive bedroom that they had, and uh, there was a big family Bible that was falling, kind of falling apart, but it had big pictures in it. I used to get that family Bible, and I, I was just a kid, and my favorite picture in the family Bible was the picture of the ascension of Jesus, where it showed Jesus with his hands raised and he had this cloth on and you could see the, his, his uh, pierced side and, he, and, the, the, and it showed the disciples kind of gazing up at him. Jesus had a physical ascension. If you go to Jerusalem, there's a place called Mount of the Ascension and there was a uh, physical uh, ascension of Jesus where he physically went up before the disciples and they're looking at him they're trying to get their you know smartphones out and get a picture and Jesus is going up into the heavens and the Bible says that these angels said to them this same Jesus whom you've seen go into heaven will come back in the same way in the same way a visible overt can't miss it coming of Jesus coming back uh, just absolutely visible. You know what happens through, if you read history, church history about, you know, the second coming of Jesus, there's always groups that predict when Jesus is going to come back. Yet Jesus said, no, many know, no man knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man. When Jesus is on the earth, he gave up his omniscience, his, his knowing of everything. And so as a human being, the Son of God, their sacrifice for our sins, he gave up that omniscience. So even while he was on earth, he didn't know when it was. But you always find groups that would say it's going to happen this time. And you go throughout history. There was a guy in 1988 uh, who wrote a book called 88 Reasons. Jesus is going to come in 1988. 
And of course, Jesus didn't come in 1988, so he came out with his next book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come in 1989. And after that, you know, he just kind of lost his following. But, you know, if you go in church history, you'll find there's the group, a group called the Millerites that believed Jesus was coming on a certain time. They predicted it. They all sold all their, their stuff, and they got on a mountain and got in robes waiting for Jesus to come. He didn't come. And so what usually happens is they change the date. Oh, we were off by a couple years. They change the date. It doesn't happen the second time. So then what happens is they spiritualize it. So, for instance, did you know the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus came back spiritually to the earth in October 31st, 1914? So when we miss the mark and we make a prediction and it's wrong, we tend to spiritualize it. Well, he came back spiritually. He's, he came back to rule. And we can't see him physically, but he's back ruling. Now, what did Jesus say? What did the, uh, what does the book of Acts say? Jesus will come back in the same way you saw him go. He's going to come back visible, overtly, can't miss it, wasn't spiritual, wasn't mystical. He just came back, and everybody, it says in the book of Revelation, every eye will see him when he comes. So we'll visibly see the Lord. Now, I, I don't subscribe to what's called premillennial, premillennialism, which says basically that Jesus comes twice, Two more times. He comes, he comes one time secretly. He kind of secretly comes, takes the church away, and then there's a seven-year tribulation period, and then he comes back overtly at the end. I just don't think that really flies biblically. I think Jesus is coming back one more time, and it's visible. There's nothing in the Scripture, really, that talks about an invisible, secretive coming of Jesus. It's always very overt. Living with us right now is a my son and Joel and his wife Stacy and our two grandkids and uh, and uh, they're they're building a wonderful house down in Bethany and uh, so they're getting stuff delivered to our house all the time. I mean, they're getting mirrors, they're getting furniture, and they're getting ready to get move into their house maybe in like six or eight weeks, something like that. And every day. Every day, without exception, this is not, I'm not exaggerating here, almost every day, maybe, you know, there's a day every once in a while, but every day, pretty much, there's the ups person comes, or the FedEx person comes, and there's, they leave a box. And you know what? I never, I hardly ever see the ups guy come. I hardly ever see the FedEx guy come. It's always like, you know, he came sometime, and, you know, there's the boxes, and he must have been here, but I never saw him. And it's sort of like, you don't see him, but, you know, there, there's the box, Jesus will not come like that. Jesus won't come like the FedEx guy or the UPS guy sneaking in the driveway, dropping off the box, running down the, the sidewalk, getting back in his truck. Jesus is coming like this. He's going to honk the horn on the UPS truck. He's going to have the windshield wipers going. He's going to have the lights flashing, and then he's going to run across the yard, and he's going to ring the doorbell, and he's going to say, I'm here. That's how Jesus comes. He comes overtly and clearly. So a couple things. There's so much to say about this, and uh, I just think it's incredible stuff here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, look, he is coming with the clouds, and it says, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. It's an incredible day. We see all these different things, uh, even in communion, when we take communion, the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, when it describes communion, listen to what it says. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, throughout the New Testament, 300 verses say he's coming. It's going to be overt. 
It's not going to be sneaky. He's coming. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean for you and me? Here's what it means. Number one, one of the things that, one of the metaphors that you, that's used about Jesus coming is he's coming like a thief. Now, when it says he's coming like a thief, it doesn't mean that we won't see him when he comes. It just means a thief, when a thief comes, you don't know when the thief is coming, so you need to have your security system on to be ready for the thief at all times. So let me give you a couple verses where this metaphor of a thief, and that's where these people, and surely they're wonderful people, and I wouldn't say nothing, there's nothing wrong with these people that believe that. I just think they're wrong. But uh, about Jesus coming secretly and then, and then, you know, seven years later he comes. I believe that all the stuff that's mentioned in the, six, uh, the seven seals in the book of Revelation, the famines, the wars, uh, you know, the uh, persecution of the church, seal number five, all that stuff that's happened in Revelation, I think that's stuff that's happening all through history. The church is always persecuted somewhere. There's people right now on this planet that are in jail because they love Jesus and because they're preaching Jesus. You look at the history of China. There's many, many believers that were in jail in China because they follow the Lord. One of my heroes is a guy named Watchman Nee, a great communicator, a great uh, author of many great books, was in jail in China for preaching the gospel, and he was physically tormented. So every time in history, right now, through church history, people have been persecuted. There's always been pestilence and famine and all that stuff. So Jesus is describing, and then also John in the book of Revelation, these things that are happening in these end times that are very, uh, that, that have actually happened throughout history. But let me, just, let me just lay this out on you. Here's what's important here, uh, is this metaphor of a thief, that Jesus is coming like a thief. Let me give you a couple verses here. How about this one? Um, Matthew 24, 42. Here's what it says, therefore keep watch, listen to this, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. Why is the concept of thief used? The concept of thief used is, is used because we don't know when. And so therefore, if we don't know when, we need to be ready all the time. Here's what it says in 1 Thessalonians. There's like eight or nine of these where he's, his coming is described as a thief. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains come on a pregnant woman. Now, let me just... Uh, let me ask you this. So, you know, we don't know when Jesus is coming. We know Jesus said he was going to come. And we know the early church was constantly waiting for his coming. And we know that he's coming like a thief, meaning we don't know when he's coming. And we know that when he comes, it says in, when Jesus comes, it will be like the days of Noah. This is a frightening verse in my opinion. It, when Jesus comes back, it will be like in the days of Noah where people are just eating and they're going to, out to dinner and they're partying and they're getting married and they're buying houses and all the stuff we do in life, which we have to do, all that stuff is important. But what he's saying, Jesus is saying, it's going to be like the days of Noah, that we're going to be preoccupied with this world. 
We're going to be preoccupied with our investments. We're going to be preoccupied with our parties. We're going to be preoccupied with just living life. And while we're sort of preoccupied, not thinking about Jesus coming, not thinking about the eternal kingdom of God, not thinking about things that are more important in this world, that we are captivated by this world, that that's when Jesus will come. Let me ask you a question. This is a question I have to ask myself. Have you thought much this week about what it's going to be like to be with Jesus forever? Have you thought much about spiritual things this week? Or has your mind been totally preoccupied, totally preoccupied with things of this plane, this world that we live in? So it's very important that we're ready. So here's the question. What would I do? What would I do? How would I live if I woke up every day and I said, what if Jesus were to come today? What if Jesus were come come today? I think if I thought that Jesus was going to come in any certain day, if I believed that Jesus was going to come on Monday, I think it would alter how I lived on Monday. I don't think that I would be tempted to do certain things. I don't think I would want to be going on the internet looking at something I shouldn't look at. I don't think that I would want to be, you know, cursing at somebody on the freeway. I don't think that I would want to be filled with bitterness towards somebody in, in my family because if Jesus was coming that day, I want to be ready for when Jesus comes and I want to live every day like he could come that day and what do I want to look like when he comes? My grandmother um, my, uh, lived across the street from me when I was growing up. My granddad, he had a great sense of humor and my grandmother, she was sort of a heavy set farm woman and uh, she, she used to go working in the garden and she would uh, pick squash or cucumbers or, or corn and what she'd do she had a long cotton dress on and she would just kind of lift the dress up a little bit and she would throw the the vegetables in that and the more vegetables she's got in there the higher she had to pull up her dress and she, of course her slip was showing and my granddad one time took a picture of her when she was coming in from the and from coming in from the garden and he she was just enraged that he did that because he snapped a picture at her when she didn't want to look the way she looked and I want to know and I'm asking myself this question. What do I want to look like when Jesus comes? What do I want to be doing? So the early church lived in a waiting game. They lived under anticipation. We're not living that way now. And I think it really has a lot to do with how we're living. We're living sort of loose. We're living sort of, you know, not very uh, godly or pure lives. We're sort of living kind of like uh, lackadaisically, spiritually, kind of like we're just sort of not really tuned in because, you know, hey, there's no urgency. The early church had urgency. They lived under the shadow of the coming of Jesus. Jesus could come any moment, and that's how they lived. And they were always ready for his coming, and they were constantly ready. A couple uh, weeks ago, Karen and I had uh, some people coming over to our house on Sunday night. We were going to have a party, uh, and we were going to sit on the back deck, and uh, and we, we were excited about them coming. We had about you know four or five couples coming, and we were going to have a you know barbecue and all that. So uh, the closer it got, I realized how bad my back deck looked. I had I had these these white railings on my back deck and I don't know if you've ever had this at your house but I got this green uh, mold growing on the railing and they're just it's just awful at this everywhere and I thought to myself do I want all these people coming sitting at my house looking at my moldy railing so I spent the whole Saturday you know out there in the sun scrubbing that I'm telling you that railing is, is just 
sparkling. I mean, it looked great. And that night when they came, they were, they were there. Nobody probably noticed, you know, what I did. But I didn't want my railing to look that way. And I cleaned my garage because if you're a man, if you're a man, how your garage looks reflects on what kind of man you are. In my garage, I knew I was going to be grilling in front of my garage. And, you know, since, you know, our family's with us, we got boxes everywhere. And my garage was a wreck. And I want a nice orderly garage. So I spent the rest of uh, Saturday kind of getting all that ready and a little bit on Sunday getting it all ready. So when they came in, I was grilling in front of my garage, just kind of like pointing at my garage. It's looking good, looking good. Because they were coming, I wanted to be ready. Are you ready? Are you ready for the greatest guests that you'll ever have? Are you ready for the coming of the king who has paid your dowry, who has purchased you with his blood, who's coming back for a bride? You know, when I got married this year, Karen and I, I think it's our 43rd wedding anniversary, I was standing up here, not at this church, but my dad's church, and Karen walked down the aisle. She was 20, 20 years old. Stunning, stunning, still is stunning, beautiful, beautiful. I mean, she was gorgeous, and she walked down in front of 300 people coming up to me, and everybody was thinking the same thing. How did he pull that off? How did he pull that off? She looked good because she was prepared for the wedding day, and she was beautiful. You're the bride of Christ. How are you looking? How am I looking? He's coming. And the bride, we could hear at any moment. Remember it says in 1 Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a trumpet call of God. Remember the bridegroom out in the street blowing the shofar for the bride? He's going to blow the shofar, and the bride is going to be called up to meet him, and we want to be ready for that. So when you think about the coming of Jesus, a couple things to think about couple things. Here's, here's, as I close, here's a couple things to think about. Number one, number one, we need to be ready, and he is coming back, and we need to remember this. History, history's not cyclical. History's not going around in a circle. We're just not going to get, you know, it's, you know Eastern, the Eastern uh, way of thinking, the Eastern world, Eastern religions are all cyclical. You know, it's, it's cycles, Buddhism, uh, just cycles. Everything keeps going around and around and around. We never really get anywhere, just seasons come and seasons go. But Christianity and Western thinking, and Western thinking got it from Christianity, Christianity is linear. It's moving toward a grand conclusion. We're moving toward a great, great climax where Jesus comes and he sets up his reign on this earth. And we're, we want to be a part of that. When I was uh, a couple years ago, quite a few years ago, probably maybe 15 years ago, I was in Germany and I was doing some ministry work. I was in Dusseldorf. I'd been there preaching and teaching a little bit. And I took a train to Augsburg where I was supposed to do a couple of days teaching and preaching. And I got to, the, got to the train station in Augsburg late at night. It was maybe 1130 at night. And the person that was supposed to pick me up wasn't there. And it was, you know, the train station was in a bad section of town. I didn't speak German. Uh, and there was sort of some seedy people around there. And I got off that train. And I waited and I waited and I waited. And it looked like nobody was going to pick me up. And the guy that was supposed to pick me up, my host, had really forgotten about me. And I finally had to call another missionary that called him. And he finally came to get me. And I want you to know this world we live in is a scary place. The world that you and I are a part of is a frightening place right now. Let me tell you something. The, the outcome of history 
is Jesus coming. Jesus is coming. He's going to set up his reign on this planet. If you are a person that just follows sorely science, you know what science says? Science says that, that uh, the sun, the star that our planet revolves around is 4.5 billion years old. In 5 billion years from now, it's going to die out. And first, it's going to run out of hydrogen. And then that means the sun's going to expand. and It's going to consume the earth. There's not enough sunblock on this planet to protect you from that. That's what scientists say is going to happen. A very fatalistic view of the future of humankind. But the Bible says that he's coming to get his church. He's coming to get his bride. And we'll reign with him in righteousness. So I want to encourage you this week. Hey, listen, in all the craziness of this world, make sure that you know the end result of this planet. And you can have hope because the great hope says that Jesus is coming. And I want you this week to not simply think about your vestments, simply think about your business, simply think about your stuff, simply think about taking your kids to this game or that game. Think broader than that. Think deeper than that. Think about serving Jesus and making Jesus first in your life because the greatest way to enjoy our walk with the Lord is to not put him third, fourth, or fifth, but to put him first. So as we wait for him coming, let's purify ourselves as we wait for him to come. Let's pray together right now. Would you lift your hands with me right where you are? Would you lift up your hands and ask the Lord to help you? And uh, wherever you are, just lift up your hands. If you're driving a course, don't do that, but lift up your hands. Let's ask the Lord to help you. Lord, we thank you for the climax of history. We thank you that this waiting game is not going to go on forever. But the early church that waited for you to come, that you are going to come. And Lord, you promised to come the first time. Old Testament prophesied over and over again that you were coming the first time. And you did come the first time. And you yourself said you're going to come the second time. And so, Lord, we thank you. It's, it's, it's been far from our mind, but make it near our mind this week as we think about your coming. And may we live every day this week like that could be the day that you would come. We love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We love you guys, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week.